0: This is Competition Law with Professor Karan Beaton-Wells, exploring the challenges in competition policy, law and enforcement. This series looks at the impact of those challenges in a digital economy and on society overall, whether you're a citizen, consumer or competitor. In this episode, Karan speaks with Professor Dick Schmalenzi about platforms and the challenges of regulating a servant with multiple masters.
1: Amazon runs two different kinds of businesses. They are an ordinary retailer. They buy things and resell them. But they also function like an online shopping mall. But what Amazon does is it provides those retailers, as it were, easy access to customers, and it provides customers, shoppers, easy access to a wide range of retailers. So again, it's a forum. It's a venue for meeting and connection. Here's Caron Baton-Wells.
0: Many of us refer to businesses like Google, Amazon, Facebook and Airbnb as platforms. But what exactly is a platform? And why are they causing headaches for regulators? Dick Schmlenzi is a professor of management and economics at MIT and co-author of the book Matchmakers, the new economics of multi platforms. He's been studying the platform business model since the 80s He's even found an example of a platform dating back a few hundred years BC, so this isn't exactly a new idea. Dick, let's start at the beginning. Tell us, how does a platform business differ from a traditional business model?
1: Well, what fascinates me are precisely the differences, and I got interested in platforms not knowing they were platforms. In the 80s, when a colleague, David Evans, and I were working on credit cards, and the credit card business is sort of a non-standard business. And somewhat later, we were working on operating systems and wrote a book on operating systems, and operating systems perform a platform function. And shortly thereafter, I would say a former student of mine, but someone who took a class from me, Jean Tyrol, wrote a classic paper with the Jean-Charles Rocher saying um, a whole lot of businesses, including those and real estate brokers and stock exchanges, are all what they call two-sided markets, what we've come to call platforms. And it was one of those moments where you say, oh, I should have seen that. Mm, I've been working on this area for so long, (laughs) on and off, and I should have seen it. But that background meant that David and I had been thinking About these businesses for a long time. And once we started thinking of them as platforms, we started to see common features and interesting dimensions. And it's fascinating. You know, these are businesses that don't sell, as we put it, don't sell stuff. They sell connections. They sell access. That's very unusual. Uh, It means they can deal with some of their customers without charging them which is very unusual. Most businesses don't sell below cost.
0: Not what they teach you in Echo 101, I think.
1: No, no, no. I mean, Google search is very valuable and it's free. How can that be? Well, they make money in other ways and one can go on and on. I've also been kept in the area, as I observe people sort of not thinking clearly about these uh, and saying, Competition authorities only have to look at one side. You say,
0: well, why is that? (laughs) Anyway. Look, it is a fascinating area. Let's come up with some examples to help us understand what we're actually talking about here, because platforms can exist in the physical, the offline world, as well as in the virtual, the online world. So perhaps if you might give us an example of An offline platform and an online platform and talk us through how that concept of selling access applies in those examples.
1: Well, the oldest example that we've found took place in the docks of Athens, several, more than a few centuries BC. And it was a location, like the original stock markets were physical locations, it was a location where ship owners and merchants and financiers would gather to assemble a trading voyage. So you needed a ship, you needed a merchant who had things they wanted to ship abroad to trade, and you had a financier who would finance the voyage. Bringing those three sides together occurred on this dock. Whoever owned the dock wasn't selling anything but the ability of these people to connect to each other. The most visible online platform, at least in the U.S., I think, is is Amazon. Amazon runs two different kinds of businesses. They are an ordinary retailer. They buy things and resell them. But they also function like an online shopping mall. A variety of other retailers sell through Amazon, just as brick-and-mortar stores sell through shopping malls. So when you go to Amazon, you can buy goods that amazon doesn't touch but what amazon does is it provides those retailers as it were easy access to customers and it provides customers shoppers easy access to a wide range of retailers so again it's a forum it's a venue for meeting and connection
0: so those are two great examples we would all be familiar with amazon if not so much with the athens dock Is Uber an example of the two worlds converging in that on the platform, which is the app, you get access to the driver, the driver gets access to you, but then you actually do get a physical service that is being taken in a car by a driver from point A to point B?
1: Oh, sure. Uber is an extraordinary example uh, and related companies. There there are lots of ride-sharing services uh, around the world these days that that are...
0: Dear me, competition. (laughs) (laughs) As you've just pointed out with your Athens example, they're not exactly new. They've been around for millennia. And your writing with David does regularly reference those deep historical roots. So why is it useful to think back in that way to businesses that have been around for so long but are now really transforming 21st century economies?
1: What's useful is to unpack... The different causes of what the current businesses look like, as you say, and as we said, the basic model is an old one. Let's find two groups that want to interact, let's facilitate interaction, and let's take a piece of the gain from that interaction. That goes back to marriage brokers, which probably even go back, literal matchmakers even go back before the docks of Athens. But what's new now? is the technology. I mean, Uber was unimaginable 30 years ago. The notion you'd stand on a street corner with a telephone in your hand and you could ask for a ride and see where the potential cars are and have them come to you. Well, I mean, that's just many parts of the world, right? I mean, uh, the server may be in San Francisco, but you can interact with Uber or its competitors all around the world. So the notion of being in the business of connecting drivers and riders, that's an old notion. Well, now you have this suite of technologies advancing rapidly in the computation and communications areas that all of a sudden you could summon an Uber ride without talking to a human being, and you can uh, rate the rider and all kinds of things over the internet. So the internet, it's a device to connect. It's a technology that connects. So it's not a great surprise that it really, as we say, turbocharges this basic business model, which is all about connections.
0: And it's really as a result of that technological change, which has been exponential, as you've described it, platforms are certainly disrupting many traditional industries. In Australia, we have an inquiry going on by the uh, competition watchdog into the impact of platforms on the news and media sector, where there's been huge job losses, closure of print factories, decimation of advertising revenues. and. That kind of disruption, or perhaps even destruction, you might call it, does provoke very strong reactions, not just in the affected business, but amongst competition officials. I think that may be behind what has led to you and David exhorting policymakers and enforcement agencies in this area to pay close attention to what you call the new economics of platforms. Can you tell us a bit about what you mean by new economics
1: what's new isn't the business model it's the understanding th- their economics. Give you a simple example. I use a restaurant reservation service called Open Table online and its pricing model is simple it's free to me in fact it's a negative price because I get rewards and the restaurant where I make a reservation pays now if you were not understanding that model, you might say, well, giving it away, that's below cost. Think about it as a platform, once you think about having to think of two sides. What David and I are saying is, first of all, you want to recognize competition authorities in particular what the economics of these businesses is all about. It's all about linking. You can't look at one side in isolation. You can't look at the price-cost relationships on one side in isolation. That makes a lot of things more complicated, like market definition, for instance. But it is an appeal to just sit back, be calm, think about the economic realities. So what's new is being systematic, but what's old is what antitrust uh, competition authorities have always done when they've functioned effectively, is to pay close attention to the business realities. The business realities for platform businesses look somewhat different, uh, but the fact that they look different doesn't mean there's anything
0: wrong. Yeah. In essence, I guess what you're arguing is that what looks like perhaps non-traditional counterintuitive strategies from a business perspective, actually makes sense once you understand the economics?
1: Well, they may make sense. I mean, we're certainly not trying to argue that platforms can't engage in anti-competitive conduct. If you are, let's say, a dating app, the more men you have who are of some reasonable quality, the more attractive the app is for women, the more women you have who are interesting, the more men you get, and there are economies of scale. You don't have, you know, 500 Ubers, Uh, competing with each other the way you have 500 restaurants. There are scale economies. Uber has a lot of drivers. That makes it more attractive to riders. A lot of people go to Uber first. That makes it more attractive to drive for Uber and so on. So inherent in this model, not universally, but pretty often, is you get high concentration. You may even get dominance. There's, you know, Facebook has sort of taken over the universe in some areas and it's that not
0: according to mark zuckerberg
1: well (laughs) we, we we may want to come back to that but it's a scale economies thing they get it both ways right it's like a telephone system the more people subscribe the more attractive it is to other people to subscribe and then when you have a lot of people on it you become very attractive to advertisers So it's not that Facebook is immune to competition. I mean, Facebook took over from MySpace. Facebook took over from uh, the dominant network in India, where Facebook entered and became dominant after a while. And Facebook itself, you know, I'm told that young people consider it passe, and they connect in other ways.
0: They do. My children will only use Snapchat, I've got to tell you, Dick. (laughs) They think it's embarrassing that their mother's on Facebook when they can streak on Snapchat.
1: That's that I gather is a common pattern, and their children won't be caught dead using Snapchat. You can you can predict that yeah, sure bet. as anything, uh, but we I have no idea what'll replace it. So you know some of it's competition for the market because there's a winner take all aspect. Some of these businesses permit differentiation of various kinds, sometimes uh, invisible. I was in France last spring and I wanted to make uh, restaurant reservations and I I went to uh, Open Table and, gee, there were no restaurants. So I talked to my French friends and I said, how come Open Table doesn't succeed? Well, nobody uses that. That's just, who who would use that? Restaurants wouldn't be on it? No, no. I said, is there nothing like that here? Oh, well, there's La Fourchette. Oh, what's La Fourchette like? Well, I went on it and it's basically open table in French, but the French are convinced it's so Mm, different from that Anglo-Saxon product you have. (laughs) So, there's room for differentiation. Mm. There's specialist dating sites of various kinds. There are specialist Mm. job... Even even
0: for married people. (laughs)
1: Yes. (laughs) There are specialist job search sites. So, some businesses' differentiation works. In interesting ways. Other businesses, it's competition for the market. This is true of offline businesses as well. But the scale economies, the network economies that drive uh, online platforms can be very powerful. And almost never do you have lots of competitors.
0: So these economies of scale, particularly on the demand side you've been talking about, are connected with this rather fancy word we use for the idea of network effects. And you talk in your book about the way in which network effects are often connected with a sort of big is bad idea and with the argument that you've got to get in first, first mover advantage, you've got to grab all the eyeballs, as you, David say, and ultimately if you get to a certain scale, you'll be the winner that takes all. But you and David are rather circumspect about those as theories, um, which suggest there's a dark side to network effects. Can you just talk us through those ideas?
1: Well, the grab all the eyeballs. You know, I remember the dot-com bubble pretty well, and that was the dominance strategic notion. You. The quality of strategic thinking in that period, as in this period, varies. So there are plenty of people who said, no, no, it's, it's harder than that. First of all, what eyeballs you have matters. Second of all, what keeps them from going to the next shiny object. Network effects can be powerful, but it's so easy to look at the winners. We spent a lot of time uh, on Open Table, particularly because the founder was willing to talk to us. When he started up his business, he said there were at least five other startups with the same model in San Francisco at the same time. Who knows where else? They signed up chain restaurants all over the country. So pretty quickly, they had thousands of restaurants. But they were thinly spread across the country. So I don't really care that there are three steakhouses in Boulder, Colorado, if I want to go out to dinner in Boston tomorrow. They were the wrong eyeballs, right? I mean, you had to have restaurants in the community where people want to dine, and then you can attract diners, and then the network effects start to go. You have a lot of restaurants, people start using the system, because people are using the system, you can get more restaurants, and it grows. But if you don't get the right eyeballs, and if the interface isn't good enough, right? I mean, if he had had a lousy system to start with, the fact that they had restaurants on it initially didn't mean they'd stay on it, or that people tried it once didn't mean they'd try it again. You know, business is business.
0: You also make the point that not only is it difficult to get right, but it's difficult to sustain the success, and you point out network effects are just not as durable as they used to be when we were thinking of physical networks. Of course, that leads us to talk about barriers to entry, if we might just briefly, and I'm referring there, of course, to the difficulties of new competitors coming into a market and challenging an incumbent. And I want to just lay out for you briefly the enormous divergence in submissions being made to the ACCC inquiry on digital platforms and the news sector on this topic of barriers to entry. So on the one hand, we have some submitters arguing that this is an online space that's highly competitive, it's dynamic, there's extraordinary innovation, frequent entry and explosive growth. And in part, that's because barriers to entry are low. Products are typically software-based, which means they can be rolled out and adopted and built quickly and cheaply. Just to build a new mobile app means minimal staff and capital investment and, and infrastructure. And of course, there's the cloud now, which dramatically has decreased time and capital to start a new online business. So that's on the one hand. And then on the other hand, you have some submitters saying, really the polar opposite, that there are high barriers to entry here, that there's considerable costs in creating a new social media platform, and they refer to the costs of software development and marketing, and the costs of building a reliable brand and loyal users and an advertiser base. So how do we reconcile those two quite seemingly irreconcilable positions? Well, because <coughs> that barriers to entry are so important
1: they are, and it depends what the business is, right? If I want to put up an online newspaper, basically, an online news feed, that's pretty easy. There are lots of them around. But if you want to mount a challenge to, let's say, Facebook, well, then you've got a harder problem. If I just want to, you know, I'm putting up a newsletter on dogs. Okay, so I need to figure out how to reach people who are interested in dogs. I could probably figure that out given a little while in public sources. If I wanna challenge one of the big players, well, then I have the chicken and egg problem, so to speak, at scale. I need to figure out a way to get enough people so that I become more attractive. Now, maybe I can do that, right? I mean, Facebook took over from MySpace uh, in the U.S., and I think more broadly, because MySpace just had a bad design. So it allowed people to post under false identities and to do a variety of inappropriate, uh, so it seems now, content. And Facebook imposed tighter rules that this Facebook was going to be the place where real people met and that worked. Mm. That worked. I mean, that's an example yeah. of where there's a there, an,
0: authenticity there, term. an mm. entity
1: with uh, all the network effects you would want. I'm sure if we look back in the press, we could find statements about how MySpace is invincible because of its size and its advertiser support. Well, it wasn't. There's no magic here. You have to actually run a business and you have to have a good design and treat both sides well and so forth. But there can be barriers. They're less durable than physical economies of scale, right? If you want to enter against Toyota in automobiles, you've got to build factories that can produce efficiently. You've got to design. You've got to do this. You've got to do that. You've got to put a whole lot of money up mm, front huge um, to acquire mm. a capability. If you want to enter against Facebook, do you need that much capital? Probably not. But you need to give people some reason to move away from the network where all their friends are. Now, you could argue that Snapchat is an effective entry against Facebook. It's a different model, it's a different product, but it performs a similar function for many people, and they find it more attractive. And as I said, I will guarantee you that your children's children will find Snapchat old-fashioned. I have no idea what they'll use but somebody in the next generation will say, you know, what's wrong with Snapchat is and they will find a way to solve that problem. You know, both sides are right in this sense that you can set up an app and go online. That's a nickel and dime affair. Can you attract people? Can you know, a platform needs users on
0: and can you keep them? Two
1: or three, yeah, on two or three sides. And if somebody mm-hmm. already has Critical mass has demand-side scale economies, so to speak. Uh, You're going to have to give them a reason to leave. Uh, You're going to have to provide a a better service, a better product, a better something. That's not necessarily impossible. It becomes harder. Again, consider Facebook. The more universal Facebook became the harder it was. It it was going to be to to say, you know, I know all of your friends are using this service, but we really have something better here. Well, I mean, if you can argue that Snapchat did it for the next generation. You don't do it by saying, we're just like Facebook, only better. In any business where there are differentiated products, that's a very hard proposition to sell. It's like, no, we've got the following 27 new features. So the question is, how hard is it to come up with 27 new features? If you're a pessimist, you say, no, Facebook or Google or whoever really is the last step in innovation. There's there's nothing possible now. They've, it
0: would be a bit depressing if that were the case. It would be a
1: bit it. depressing, and it would be very anti-historical <laughs> if that were the case. I, I, <laughs> I, right. I, I have great faith in the ability for good or for ill for humans to innovate. And given all the capability this suite of uh, Internet-related innovations has provided, you know, this is a powerful general-purpose technology, and people are going to keep innovating with it. So I'm not too concerned, but there will be market power. And competition authorities need to pay attention, as always, to firms with market power. Because of the demand-side scale economies driven by network effects, it'll happen. And you got to watch it Firms with market power have a tendency to behave in uh, anti-competitive ways to maintain that power, and competition authorities are there to check that behavior. And just because it's all gee whiz and shiny doesn't mean there can't be abuse. On the other hand, just because they're big doesn't mean they're abusive.
0: Mm. And one of the um, arguments you frequently hear Facebook and other platform platforms Advocates speak of this argument relating to multi-homing, which makes me think of pigeons roosting for some reason. But it's exactly the opposite. It's the idea that users of these platforms will flit around, will use, on average, say, eight different services for related purposes. How persuasive is that? Because, on the other hand, you could say, well, even if we use Facebook, Snapchat... I'm trying to think of other examples that are not owned by Facebook, and that's
1: increasingly difficult. It's <laughs> difficult, yes. um,
0: So even if we use a multitude of similar services, the reality is, though, we're never actually going to totally abandon Facebook, are we? Because to do that, we'd have to persuade all our friends, our family members, um, our associated social entities, and, and for some people, their businesses, to leave the platform. So is multi-homing really a persuasive argument in this context?
1: I must say it's an unfortunate technical term, uh, <laughs> but it has caught on. Multi-homing means you, one side or the other, can use multiple platforms. The old example was software developers, app developers, tend to produce apps for both Apple and Android phones. So they multi-home in the sense that they can switch easily between them. On the other side of those platforms, most users at any one point use just one type of phone. So the ability of multi-homing, I think, really depends critically on the situation. I take your point on social networks. On the other hand, people use LinkedIn for business, at least the people here. And many people who are, use social networks mainly for business don't use Facebook for that purpose. They use LinkedIn or something else. And that's an example of an entry. are offering a differentiated product. You can connect with people on a professional basis. Will we ever abandon Facebook? Well, you say your kids never use it. They've abandoned it. They've abandoned it. And can they get through life without it? Yeah. And if you come step up a little bit to my generation, a lot of my friends never use it. As I say, their kids will consider Facebook a very interesting antique. So it's not so much the multi-homing. It's the innovation. I think in terms of social networks, there is a tendency... For there to be sort of a main way I connect with friends, and for a wide swath of the population, Facebook is the main way they connect with friends. I remember when I realized talking to young people, I said, you know, you're never going to lose track of the people you went to high school with, whereas I've lost track of most of my high school friends, not all of them, but a fair number of them particularly women who get married and change their names, and uh, they're gone. I have no idea. Very Uh,
0: inconvenient.
1: Very inconvenient. What's what's that all about? But uh, one of those those old hang-ups of the hangovers from the male-dominated world. But you
0: still hover a few.
1: I'm sure that'll change. Uh, Well, my wife's maiden name was Hawk. And when we got married, as we did uh, uh, almost 51 years ago, she changed it as one would, to Schmollensee. Yeah. And our kids are saying, why did you do that? <laughs> Hawk is such a cool name. <laughs> I said, well, yeah, yeah, she wouldn't do it now, oh, I'm sure. Uh, cool. But uh, anyway.
0: Speaking of uh, intergenerational differences, Dick, clearly there are some members of the US Congress who've never been on Facebook. And this was evident from aspects of the congressional questioning of Mark Zuckerberg recently. Mr. Zuckerberg, I remember well your first visit to Capitol Hill back in 2010. You spoke to the Senate Republican High Tech Task Force, which I chair. You said back then that Facebook would always be free. Is that still your objective? Senator, yes. There will always be a version of Facebook that is free. It is our mission to try to help connect everyone around the world and to bring the world closer together in order to do that, we believe that we need to offer a service that everyone can afford and we're committed to doing that. Well, if so, how do you sustain a business model in which users don't pay for your service?
1: Senator, we run ads. <laughs>
0: nice. now, yeah, like, I, I, I don't know if you Have you not heard that? Yeah. <laughs> or does it just did, make I you laugh I every l- time I, you hear it? <laughs>
1: I hadn't actually listened to the testimony because I, I, I'm not a great uh, consumer of news via video. I tend to be a newspaper person, but I, you know, you read the story and you say, "These people actually didn't understand at all." No, uh, they didn't.
0: No, it was embarrassing. Um, but listening which, which to which is
1: funny because they all have staff. They all have young staff, and you would think the first thing they would do before. Uh, confronting Mark Zuckerberg in front of television cameras Takes was they would talk to their young staff and mm. say, uh, and, "And brief me on this. Mm. What, mm. Are the, what are the key questions? What are the key issues? How can you run a business like that? Mm. Well, you know, um, good question. Mm. Mm. How can you sell newspapers below cost?
0: So he, look, uh,
1: they've been selling newspapers below cost for hundreds of years because they run ads.
0: So with the greatest of respect to the senator, he clearly didn't get the platform business model. How important is it that not just politicians and policy makers but competition authorities really grapple with and understand the business realities of platforms? What have you observed in recent advocacy or even enforcement decisions by these authorities that might lead you to be concerned about that level of understanding currently?
1: Well, I I haven't followed events outside the U.S. too closely in this area, although I did see a very nice paper that came out of the EU Competition Authority on this subject that talked about how do you do market definition in uh, the case of platforms, and sometimes you want to think about a single market connecting the two sides. Sometimes you want to think about each side being a separate market, but the market's being connected. Contrast this with advocacy before the US Supreme Court in a case involving American Express. The the details beyond the question of how you define a market are interesting, but not the concern. So, David and I put in an amicus brief that says, well, American Express is in the business of connecting consumers and merchants, and that's the market. It's the market for payment systems that connect consumers and merchants. Very distinguished people put in a brief that said, no, no, that's wrong. The standard for market definition is you have to group goods or services that are reasonably interchangeable, and the service provided to merchants is not reasonably interchangeable with the service provided to consumers, and so you can consider each one separately. And we said, wait, that has nothing to do with the business reality here.
0: Mm, that's mm. The, it's one-sided thinking, Oops.
1: Yeah, it doesn't have two independent divisions. You sell to consumers, you sell to businesses, let me know how it works out. No, it's in the business of connecting. So these guys said, well, you know, it's like tennis rackets and tennis balls. Sure, it's good to have both. And we say, no, you can sell tennis balls without selling tennis rackets. You can't sign up merchants without connecting them to consumers. It's completely different. So uh, that case will be decided relatively soon. And I don't know who will prevail on this question. Um, there's a there's a similar case before uh, this, a circuit court in New York, which involves the airline reservation system Sabre, which basically charges airlines and subsidizes travel agents. You know, the argument was, well, that's not right. That's not competitive. How can that be a case under competition where the travel agents get a negative price? That's clearly a violation of something. Well, no. I mean, turns out there are a number of competitive reservation services and they all do the same model. And if one of them were to stop, it would go out of business. So I find it odd at this stage of evolution of economics and frankly of competition policy that in the U.S. in particular, there still is this uh, reluctance to just look at the business on its face and say, here's what they do. Here's how they compete. Let's evaluate that. Whether American Express should be found to have violated the law or not is not a particular concern of mine. What is a concern is that they do the analysis right, uh, in that case, and that was what our brief was about, you can easily make up examples of where looking just at one side leads you astray. I'll give you one other example. Again, it's a simple open table example. If you don't show up for reservations, I think you get two in a year, they throw you off the network. This is refusing to deal with a customer. I mean, how many businesses do that? I'm now blanking on the name of the star that Facebook threw out of their network for uh, operating under an assumed name. You say, wait a minute, this is a business that sells eyeballs to advertisers and is throwing away an eyeball. Well, you have to think through the reasons for those rules because bad behavior would compromise the basic design of the network which attracts other people. It's like going back to the MySpace world in which you could post anything you wanted destroyed MySpace. Well, Facebook wants to be very sure it doesn't go down that road, which would make very little sense unless you think about two-sidedness. And throwing off people who don't honor their reservations makes very little sense until you realize, yeah, letting me cancel reservations... Is fine for me, but it annoys the restaurants yeah. and they need the restaurants. The restaurants pay. What
0: you're saying then is it's fundamental to these models that there be a level of trust. In the case of Open Table, the restaurants have to trust that the customers will show up. In the case of Facebook, all users need to trust that other users are actually authentic, they are who they say they are. Is that right?
1: I mean, it depends on the platform, Mm. right? Trust is not critical in the case of newspapers, although you'd like to trust that the content is real. But in a number of others, yeah, trust is critical that there be a set of rules that's obeyed. The classic old example are stock exchanges. Even before government regulation, stock exchanges had rules. And the reason you had rules usually limiting what brokers could do was you need to attract the public. And if brokers could take advantage of the public, you're going to lose the public. So stock exchanges imposed restrictions on the behavior of their members in order to make sure that the public would trust the platform. In a number of cases, you're absolutely right, trust is critical – and you have to enforce it. Look at Amazon Marketplace, It's a long set of rules that if you sell on Amazon, you have to abide by. And you know, that makes, those rules make Amazon less attractive to merchants than it might be, but it enables customers to trust what goes on on Amazon. That's a fairly, I wouldn't say universal, but it's awfully common.
0: Mm. So really in essence, What I understand key argument by you and David to be is that in dealing with competition issues relating to platforms, it's critical that authorities use evidence-based analysis. They don't just soldier on with the rote application of their antitrust tools that were designed primarily for single-sided firms or for physical um, multi-sided ones. And I think you have a lovely phrase where you say in one of your papers... Competition policy should march to the evidence, uh, not to the slogans.
1: I mean, I look, I think that should not be a revolutionary or counter-revolutionary or whatever doctrine. That's pretty standard competition policy. Just look at the evidence, think it through, try to understand what's really going on. And a problem is sometimes that analysis is much more complicated when you're dealing with two-sided platforms. Uh, Two-sided platforms sometimes compete with single-sided firms. How do you think about a merger between two shopping centers that also face competition from standalone retail stores? Well, that's harder than if they've got the same exact model. But you don't solve that problem by pretending it doesn't exist. You have to think, what's the best way? How can I shed light on the likely competitive consequences of that merger? Looking at price cost margins gets a little tricky when they're sometimes negative on one side of the business. Sometimes it makes sense to look at the whole price. In the case of American Express, right? I mean, they charge merchants and subsidize consumers. So you can look at the net price of a transaction. You can't always do that. A net price... That way is a little tough in the case of newspapers. You can look at profitability. You can always look at exclusionary actions. You know, you can think through the consequences of challenged behavior. But that's it, it's evidence. It's not, these people are evil because look how big they are, or these people are good because look how bright and shiny they are. It is, let's look at the evidence. What are the facts? What's the allegation? What's the issue? How does the business work?
0: And Matchmakers, your book with David, is really a treasure trove for anyone trying to understand the new economics or the business realities, as you've said, of these platform models. When you set out to write it, you and David, who did you anticipate your audience would be?
1: We anticipated the audience would be basically in the business community. We published it with the Harvard Business School Press. We didn't include material on competition policy. Uh, There was some there in an early draft outline, but we persuaded ourselves that telling a businessman here's how the competition authorities should behave was not the most attractive package. So we aimed it for the business community broadly, for potential investors. I'm very pleased with this book because I think we managed to get the theory right without being technical. And to put in enough examples so you could sort of see what we were talking about in concrete terms, uh, we made it a, uh, you know, let's try to understand.
0: Let me say it's a a page turner, and I don't think I've ever said that of an economics uh, book. And even if you didn't write it for them, um, I would counsel any competition authority official wanting to understand more about this area to pick it up. Uh, it's just been wonderful talking to you, Dick. I, I don't think I'll forget your your laughter in response to hearing um, Zuck's grab from his congressional hearings too quickly. Um, <laughs> wonderful stuff. So thank you very much for joining us on Competition Law and um, look forward to catching you around the competition policy circuit perhaps one day.
1: Great. Well, the pleasure was mine. Thank you very much.
0: I hope that information helps to clear things up for the U.S. Congress. I won't forget Dick's reaction to Mark Zuckerberg's statement in a hurry. Dick Schmlanzi's book really is a good read, and I recommend it if you'd like a deeper understanding of the platform businesses that now dominate our lives. You'll find a link to that and to some of his other work in the show notes. Next time on Competition Law, Chairman of the Australian Competition and Consumer Commission, Rod Sims. The ACCC's Digital Platforms Inquiry is concerned with the effect of search engines, social media and content aggregators on media and advertising markets. Rod explains how the inquiry is going about this mammoth task and why he describes himself as a committed capitalist. Until then, you can find our blogs, resources and links at competitionlore.com. I'm tweeting at BW, and please subscribe to the podcast and leave us a review. Competition Law was produced by writtenandrecorded.com. I'm Karan Beaton-Wells. See you next time.